Is this mic hot? I know y'all are having to fiddle with that a little bit. Is it? Is it good? Okay. I might have been hearing something else. <clears throat> Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you need a page number, which is okay, don't feel like if you're funny, you're, like there's something wrong with you if you do, uh, you can grab the Bible, the, the book that's in the seat bottom in front of you, and turn to page 977. We are in Ephesians chapter 4. Church growth is a topic that folks that are in um, ministry circles talk about a lot. There are actually church growth conferences where you can go as a ministry person and hear about all the latest methods and uh, plans and I hesitate to use the word schemes, but I'll go ahead and use the word schemes for church growth. Uh, I, I haven't been to a lot of these conferences. I've only been to a couple of them, and I only went because they were free for me and free for our staff. Uh, I'm not real fond of the whole conversation because the, 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 the thrust of the conference oftentimes, or at least from the glimpse that I've had from seminary, from conversations that folks have at seminary, from these conferences, the thrust of the conferences and conversation has been um, almost having a goal of parking problems and having a goal of seating problems, almost making it a goal of having kid space problems and a goal of having staff that's so stretched and so challenged um, that we have to start adding more staff. Um, that I don't know what's so unsavory for me about those conferences, but maybe it's the target. And oftentimes, at least every conference that I've been to and everyone that I know about, the guy that they have come in to do the conference as the guest speaker is almost without fail uh, the pastor of the largest church. The guy that has the fastest growing, numerically growing, let me qualify it, church. And inevitably, the guy is just as cool as, like, James Dean or somebody. I mean, I'm trying to think of cool people. I, I, I'm not really tuned into that very much, but the guy's just really cool. Like, a cool breeze blows into the room when he walks in. And it's something about his charisma and his methodology that has resulted in a growing church. But you can go through an entire conference without opening your Bible. That's what I think has made me want to shower when I go to one of those things or made me feel like I was unclean in some way in the middle of those sort of conversations because it just didn't reconcile for me that parking problems should be our goal, that seating capacity problems should be our goal. I think they're problems that every church wants. And I'd be lying if I said we didn't want those problems. We're seeing, in some ways, some of those problems here at Crosspoint. And we've seen them in different, different times in the life of our church in the last 14 years. But here's what I think is distinct for us. Maybe from the conference conversation. Maybe from the whole church growth conversation. Is these have never been our goals. They have never been our goals I'll characterize it for you this way. I've been asked over the years, maybe in these circles as people are talking church growth, what's your vision for the next decade? Or what's your vision for the next year? What's your plan as one of the pastors of the church to grow the church? And when I've been asked these kinds of questions, at least if I was asked the question in the first eight years of Crosspoint Fellowship, my vision for Crosspoint Fellowship was to preach through the book of John for eight years. 
And I kind of get a look from somebody like, okay, huh, what else you got? Now, I admit that there were some other plans for identifying and raising up leadership during that time. But really, for the most part, my goal in the first eight years was to preach through the book of John. If they asked me in the next period, or as we're moving from John to somewhere else, my answer would have been, my goal is to preach through Hebrews. And then also, we'd like to get our life groups up and going. But the focus is we want to preach through Hebrews and what's your goal in the fall? Well, if you ask me around fall time frame, frequently, at least the last couple of years, the goal has been to preach through Isaiah. And then in the last couple of years, if someone were to ask me, what's your goal? Uh, my goal is to preach through the book of Ephesians. They've all but said, okay, but what are you actually going to do to grow your church? In fact, they've even said it at times. I, my response sort of to them as I've talked to them, as I get this thousand-yard stare and this look of confusion, I thought in some ways it's like a, I heard the saying of, of an old cow looking at a new gate. Like, what in the world are you talking about? So, yeah, I want to preach through John because John 20, 31 says that John wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and then by believing you may have life in his name. That's what my vision is for Crosspoint Fellowship huh, okay, but how are you going to grow your church? Or maybe preaching through Hebrews, my vision is that we have a view of a perfect high priest in Christ, one who is seated and in session and reigning and ruling at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Okay, that's nifty. That sounds pretty uh, awesome and theological, but what are you going to do to grow your church? conversation in Isaiah is, well, I want to take our people to be acquainted with and enjoy the suffering servant and the true vine of Isaiah. Wow, that's, that's nifty. How are you going to grow your church? And in Ephesians, I've wanted to take our people to enjoy the fine husband that we have and us as the bride of Christ. I wish I could say that Scott and Brad and I envisioned exactly where we would be right now in year 14, that we would be what we are right now. But really, honestly, Brad and Scott aren't that smart. <laughs> Nor am I. Frankly, Brad and Scott and I have a great sense of humor about where we are because we had no big master plan. We didn't have this big vision that was something that would wow the church growth conferences. All we had was a plan to preach through the Bible book by book and to walk with his people the best we could. The thing that I enjoy as we look back as we see that his word was in fact a lamp unto our feet, shining just the next few steps in the glow of the last few verses. It's pretty unimpressive. But that's what it's been for 14 years. And here we are with some of the very problems that every church hopes for. So we can ask the question how we got here. Ephesians 4 verses 7 through 16 I think have given us some insight over the last few weeks. Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 16 I think may be the best guide in our Bibles to biblical church growth. And notice I qualified it. Biblical church growth, as in kingdom of God church growth. What is real, substantial, true, eternal type biblical church growth? I think Ephesians chapter 4 
verses 7 through 16 will give us a clue. And interestingly enough, there is not one mention of numbers in there. There's not one emphasis on parking space. Now granted, they're parking mules or parking something, wagons. There's no emphasis on kid space. It's a strong passage that really involves every single member of the church. Every, and I don't mean most of the church. I mean every single member of the church is involved in this passage. The pastor, teacher, and the evangelist is involved in this passage. It is a growth plan, listen, that is both mystical and practical at the same time. Mystical. I'll come back to that word later on this morning. Mystical and practical. What I want to do in the next couple of minutes is, is sort of unpack these verses. Uh, it's, this, this first 16 verses of chapter 4 um, is, is one of Paul's notorious long sentences. Paul is, is the best at writing these long sentences where phrases are so dependent on one another that it's very difficult to parachute in one portion of it without explaining the rest of it. So I'm going to start in verse 7, and I'm going to just a couple of verses at a time move through the passage. But here's the plan for the morning. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning on verses 15 and 16. But in order to make sense of verses 15 and 16, we need to figure out what's being said starting with verse 7. So a couple of verses at a time. Let's begin there, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. These first couple of verses sort of develop the, the point that gifts have been given to every single person. You remember a moment ago I said that this passage on church growth involves every single member of the body. These couple of passages point toward the notion that grace gifts... And those words are used in some ways interchangeably in this passage. Grace gifts have been given to every single person in the body. Remember this because this is where we're going to land the plane this morning. In verse 9 it says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. These couple of passages, they're set off in parentheses in my Bible, likely in yours. They're treated parenthetically, but really in some ways, these couple of passages are explaining what he's just said. That these gifts that have been distributed to the church were hard-won gifts. They were gifts that were given by the victor. He references in verse 8 here, Psalm 68, which is a victory psalm. It is a psalm about God kicking some people and taking names. Let me just leave it to you. Leave it like that. Kicking Heine. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there because it is. Kicking Heine and taking names. And as he's doing that then, he gives gifts to his people. And those gifts that each of us have were hard-won gifts. And what authority he has to do that is because he has descended to the lowest human experience on the cross. But he has also ascended to the Father's right hand, the seat of majesty, and he is reigning and ruling and in session. Let's look at verse 11, continuing on with this gifts conversation. 
And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. And shepherds, teachers, you can, you can almost treat those together as shepherd teachers, pastor teachers. We're really talking about four different offices here that have been given to the church. Earlier, he's been talking about these gifts that were given to each one of us, these individualized gifts that were hard won through the work of the cross. Now he's shifted gears to gifts that are given to the church, human gifts, real people with real names and real faces. The apostles and the prophets were ancient versions of what we have now in the evangelist and the pastor teacher. The apostles and prophets are um, extinct. They died with the early church. But the pastors and teachers and evangelists carry on the work of those gifts, those human gifts given to the church. So, so far in verse 7, we've talked about gifts given to each of us. And here in verse 11, we've talked about gifts given to the church, human gifts. Now, as far as those human gifts go, verse 12 tells us really in some ways what a job description is for those human gifts. If you were here on that Sunday or a couple of Sundays that we dealt with verse 12, you know that we did a little modification there. Different versions handle this passage very differently, and it's, man, I'm telling you, Bible translation is not an easy task, and that's why I think we have commentaries. That's why we have preachers to help us make sense of those things. What we did over the course of a couple of Sundays is we realized that we ought to add some words in there that are better words, and we ought to place a comma in there in a place where there's not. And what happens is what you see before us. Instead of equipping the saints, these human gifts that are given to the church, the pastor, teacher, and the evangelist, are about the work of actually perfecting the saints. It's more than a coaching job. I love coaching. I love coaches. I love the notion of coaches. But the pastoral role as pastor, teacher, and evangelist is more substantial than coaching. The pastor, teacher of the local church is more than a life coach. The pastor teacher in the local church and the evangelist is about the work of perfecting and completing the saints. And we added a little comma in there that that pastor teacher and evangelist is doing the work of ministry. And what looks like the work of ministry there is the ministry of the word. Doing the very thing I'm doing right now is the work that the pastor teacher is called to do and the evangelist. Teaching and preaching the word. And the little third phrase in there is the building up of the body to a mature manhood. And that's in verse 13. I can't remember if I read verse 13 or not. I may not even read verse 12. So let me just read it. To equip the saints or to perfect and complete the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a job description for the local pastor. Some of you are looking for a church home. That's what to look for in your local pastor, that he is perfecting and completing the saints, that he's doing the ministry of the word, teaching and preaching and bringing that and wielding that week by week by week, heralding it. And third, that he is building the body to mature manhood. Now verses 14 and 15 introduce us to the point. I love passages that help us see the point. And verse 14 and 14 specifically begins with the words, so that. 
I call attention to these words nearly every time we visit them in a passage because they are so important. People ask the question, well, what's the point? What's the point of a local pastor? What's the point of the evangelist or the pastor teacher? Well, there's two points that are presented here. And the first point we considered a couple Sundays ago. The purpose of the local pastor in the, in the church and the evangelist and the pastor teacher is, first of all, in there in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let me summarize it for you. My call in the local church as a human gift that's been given to the church, Brad's call, Scott's call in the local church is to wield the word, to herald the word, to teach it and preach it week by week so that we as a church are no longer children tossed to and fro, easily fooled by every wind of doctrine and every little thing that we could be tempted with. Every little scheme that people are actively trying to influence the church with. That's our call as a protective. We might even call it a defensive role. That's the first purpose. The second purpose is where we're really going to spend a few minutes today in verse 15. The first was so that we may no longer be children. The second is in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, here it is, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The second purpose of the pastor, teacher, and the evangelist in the local church is so that we will grow up into Christ. Speaking the truth in love that's been informed By the teaching and preaching of the word, how can you possibly speak the truth in love if you don't know the truth, if you haven't had your mind renewed week by week by the ministry of teaching and preaching? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into Christ. All right. Now let me summarize. All right. Y'all did a pretty good job paying attention. All angst that I felt all week was about those last few minutes because I know some of y'all are parachuters. You're parachuters because you're visiting this morning. You just parachuted into this huge, massive sentence. And others of you are forgetful, so you're parachuting by default just because you're forgetful. So we hopefully have caught everybody up. Let me summarize verses 7 through 14 for you. In every believer's hands in the local church, God has given us, Christ specifically, God the Son has given us a gift. And it was hard won through the work of the cross. It's unique to you. It's like a fingerprint. It's something that he gave you for the benefit of building up the body of Christ, the body, the church. Okay, It was hard won by Christ. And in the church also, there are hard won human gifts. These are also given by Christ the victor to the church body to mature the body. And those human gifts have a purpose. That first purpose that we considered is so that we as a church will not be fooled by false teaching. The second purpose is so that we will grow into Christ. That sounds about clear as mud right there, doesn't it? I mean, really, let's be really honest about that second thing. The first thing you can envision, you can envision these guys, these, these guys throwing weighted dice, trying to, you know, fool you with a scheme and they're cunning. That's something we can envision. But the second thing, let's be really honest, growing into Christ, that sounds sounds nice, but I really have no idea what that is. I've I've raised um, 
we have three kids, and the oldest of our three, Evan, is, she is notorious for asking the question that, that so often is just so obvious to me. She'll ask a question about a passage or about something I'm trying to explain to her. What does that even mean, Dad? <laughs> okay, what does that even mean? And if she were here right now, that's the question that I would, she would be thinking right now. Okay, what does that even mean? And I want you to ask that question of yourself this morning. As you're hearing the job that I have as one of the pastors in this church is to grow us into Christ, that you're thinking to yourself, okay, what does that even mean to being grown up into Christ? We're going to explore that in a moment, but let me just point out, first of all, the call for the church is not just to be wise to false teaching. Okay, just not that first point. If that was the only purpose was to keep you from being fooled, that would just be a defensive role for us. I would have the job of basically helping us set up our defenses where we could recognize the enemy and recognize their schemes and cunning, but that would only be defensive. Understand that. But the second job that we have together is to grow up into Christ. That's offensive. Instead of just being defensive like the first purpose, this one is actually offensive. We as a church have a responsibility of actually moving forward. Think about that for a minute. We have a responsibility of a church, as a church together, to actually mature and move forward together. And specifically, as this passage describes it, maturing and growing up into Christ. Before we talk about what it is, let's first own that that's what's being said here. There's the expectation for a church in order to be ready for Christ's return, to be grown up to the mature manhood and the stature that is Christ, that we are actually growing up into him. Now let me see if I can help you get the cookies off the top shelf in regards to what this means, growing up into Christ. Let me first of all acknowledge that this concept of union with Christ has been a treasure for me in Ephesians. It's a message that's developed in the book of Ephesians that I had not really apprehended beforehand, and I will spend the rest of my life not fully apprehending it, but I believe I've got enough of a taste to appreciate the beauty of it. It's a message that really is all over our New Testament. Think about this for a minute. I found these stats this morning. The, the phrase of, excuse me, with Christ, the phrase, just those two words, with Christ, is mentioned 11 times in our New Testament. Okay, that doesn't necessarily sound impressive. You could think about maybe disciples walking with Christ. You know, that doesn't sound all that cool. 11 times. Ooh, that's not a big number. Okay, how about this one? Of Christ. Of Christ maybe leans into the direction of something going on that might be a little more mystical. The two words of Christ are mentioned 92 times in our New Testament. 92 times. Now here's the really cool one. The two words in Christ. What I'm talking about right now, the thing that healthy churches are growing into, growing in Christ, into Christ. The two words in Christ are mentioned 89 times in our New Testament. They're mentioned 89 times, and I'm thinking about the reality that most Christians, a lot of Christians maybe, if you ask the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? You're like, I don't know. It's all over our New Testament, though. 
What does it mean to mature and grow into Christ? I don't know, but I know it's right there in the passage. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to try and get the cookies off the top shelf and make sense of it. Here's a little description, and I'm going to help you visualize it. First, it starts with this concept of union with Christ. You know, somebody may have presented the good news to you over the years. As you've, uh, somebody shared Christ with you, and you've come to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. And I can't imagine the different ways that could have happened, but I would hope that a way that it would have been developed and presented is the notion of union with Christ, that when you place your faith in Christ, that something happens where you are united mystically to Christ. Here's a passage that will help you sort of connect to the concept. It's right across the page in my Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. I want you to notice what happens with Christ in this passage. I want you to pay attention to this beautiful concept. But God, being rich in mercy, okay, Paul has just developed for the Ephesian church the bad news in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. But here in verse 4, he begins to present the good news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and it wasn't just a Jewish problem. Or excuse me, it wasn't just a Gentile problem. It was a Jewish problem as well. We were all by nature children of wrath, hell-bound, if we want to kind of put, it, put a little tag on it. But then the sweetest two words in our Bible, but God in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul had to go start making up words to do what he's doing right here. Made alive together with Christ is a word that he made up in Greek. It didn't even exist in Greek before Paul wrote it in this letter. Made alive together with Christ. Look, by grace you've been saved. Look what happens next. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him. There it is a third time in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Look, In Christ Jesus. We're talking about something that is indeed so glorious that Paul had to go make up words to explain what happens when you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, that you are made alive together with him. That that Easter morning 2,000 years ago and his victory over death becomes your victory over death. His Easter morning is our Easter morning. He made us alive together with Christ. He quickened us with Christ. When you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are united to his quickening. And he raised us up with him. His exit from that tomb where he stepped out in the dew, the dewy grass on that Easter morning, you stepped out there with him when you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. And then the scandal of it all, not only did he help you in that by uniting you to him where you defeat death, but he seated you in a place of honor. The third thing there is you are seated together with him. Union with Christ by faith means that you participate in his victories. You participate in his victory over death, and you actually are seated with him in heavenly places right now. Man, it's the best news in the world. It's by faith he takes on the penalty for our sins and we take on the triumphs of his victory. By faith. It's the best news in the Bible. It is truly the greatest story ever told. It is truly good, good news. I want you to think about it like this. Uh, just imagine that you are a, like a destitute, homeless, um, smelly, 
a dirty street person, and let's make you a female, okay? Some of you already are. Some of you have to think about this a minute. You're a gal that's living on the street, and you're in bad shape. Not only do you live on the street, you have debt that you can't even begin to pay. Credit card debt, whatever it is. You run up the bill at Bell's. I don't know whatever, where you might shop, Belks or something. But, man, you're in debt, and you're on the street. But a rich guy, a rich, handsome, dashing guy, says, you know what? I'll marry you. I'll marry you, and I'll clean you up. And I'll pay your debt. Not because there's anything special in you, but so that in the ages to come, people will see my grace and my mercy toward the undeserving. Man, it's the greatest story ever told. His riches become ours, and our debt is reconciled by him. That is union with Christ. That happens when we place our faith in him. And this is, let me tell you something, it's not just a one-time deal. Look at how the passage reads in chapter 4, verse 15. We are to grow up in every way into him. I don't know a single one of you that's grown up overnight. Growing up takes time, doesn't it? Growing up into Christ also takes time. It's not just something that happens on this one moment where you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. It's something that continues over the life of Christ, your, your entire lives as you walk with Christ and you journey with Him and His people. As we enjoy Him together through the Word, remember, we're talking about as those human gifts that are given to the church are doing the work of bringing the Word, the ministry of the Word. Through that, you grow up in every way into Christ. That's the mystical union with Christ, and it becomes more and more manifest with every meal we eat together. Every meal of the Word we eat together becomes more and more manifest. You grow more and more into Him, but it takes lots and lots of time. Now, I promised you I was going to help you visualize this. You can turn the page over to chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. It's at the tail end of a passage. You may see the heading there right above verse 22 where Paul's been talking to the church about wives and husbands and how wives and husbands are supposed to move together. Okay, there's lots of wives and husbands in here. Some of you may be married and your spouse is not with you right now, but there's lots of... Your children of a mom and a dad that are husband and wife. Okay, there's lots of real practical stuff right in front of us we can touch. So let me show you something. Ephesians chapter 5. He's just been talking about a bunch of practical stuff about how husbands and wives are supposed to move together. And then in verse 25, he addresses husbands. And he starts using this language that starts to sound like, okay, Paul, are you talking about a husband and a wife? Or are you talking about Christ and the church? And the answer is yes. I'm talking about both. And look what he says in verse 21. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. We might even call it mystical. It's such a hard-to-grasp concept how that happens that your senses don't even have a place to make sense of it or to perceive it. It is a profound mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ 
and the church. Now, I told you I was going to give you a visual, a place to park this concept of growing up into Christ. And I think that marriage is no accidental tutor. We have a room full of those illustrations sitting right in front of us of how that works. This profound mystery of the way a man and a woman, when they are married, become one. I want you to think about this. It's something that happens in a moment. Christy and I were married in Conroe, Texas, almost 22 years ago. We were two people when we walked in that building. It was a church. Um, I don't remember the name of the church. We were two people when we walked in that building in the eyes of the Lord. And through our covenant with each other and with God, we became one. Just like this passage says, the two shall become one. And it's a profound ministry or mystery. Now, let me tell you right now, that happened in a moment. I can't remember how long the ceremony was, 45 minutes maybe, an hour. You think about how long a a wedding might be. It happens in a moment where two walk in and they walk out as one. But let me tell you something. We're 22 years into this thing and we're still trying to figure out how to be one. And I'm not talking about crisis. I'm not talking about fights or war. I'm talking about we're still learning how to really grow into one another and how to walk in what was reckoned on day one. If you want a place to sort of park this concept of growing up into Christ, I think marriage is no accidental tutor. I read some research this week on married couples. Uh, This research has identified, found, that there is a sort of sixth sense with married couples that are really close. That doesn't happen for every couple just because they got married. But for those couples that have really grown together over time, they have in some ways what they've identified in some ways as a sixth sense where their brain waves come in sync with one another. Their nervous system begins to overlap and their hearts actually beat together. Man, is that beautiful? Does anybody think that is just beautiful? Whether you experience that or whether you've had little moments of that or whether you've been witness to that or whether you hope for that, you've got to enjoy the beauty of what happens in marriage over time. This profound mystery where we grow into one another as a husband and a wife. Nervous systems overlap where you begin to decipher life together. Almost like you can't make sense of certain things if your spouse is not there. We're 22 years into that, and I experienced that with Christy at times. I, there are times where I look at Christy. I look at her, and I think about how she completes me. I mean, I conceptually really have this conscious moment where I feel like she's the rest of me. The better part of me, but the rest of me. I'm not kidding. And I'm not talking about some sort of quaint little feeling, feel-good thing. I'm talking about in reality. And we don't have it all together. We've just been hard at this thing for 22 years. But I think we're growing together in this profound ministry where things are beginning to overlap. It's mystical even. Marriage is no accidental tutor. I think it gives us just a glimpse of what it means to grow into Christ. You know those couples that you hear them together, or maybe your grandparents that you've seen together for a long time and how they complete each other's sentences and the other one doesn't get upset because really he was dependent on her to help him complete the thought. But she knew it. 
because they overlapped and they'd grown together. Man, I think marriage gives us a beautiful glimpse of what this means to grow into Christ, where we are so in tune with Him that He completes our sentences. As we're deciphering life, we can't make sense of it without Him being there, without His words being part of the conversation. And He literally completes our sentences, and we experience life together. That's what it means to grow into Christ. I think it's what Paul meant when he called the Corinthians to take on the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. We are to grow up into Christ. I think this passage and what I'm about to look at in verse 16 gives us a little guide for church growth. Just three brief points on church growth. The first comes from verse 16. Let me offer these three points and condition them. I'm going to call it biblical kingdom growth. Biblical kingdom church growth. Because I'm not talking about just numbers and seats in the, you know, people in the seats. I'm talking about real, hearty, true, eternal, kingdom advancing, biblical church growth. First of all, it isn't measured in numbers. It isn't measured in numbers, but it's measured in something that's immeasurable, mystical even, mysterious even, in lives connected to and into Christ, in lives energized to and into Christ. And here's a word that I know our L3 guys are going to love, in lives that are actuated into Christ. Man, that's hard to measure, isn't it? I sure would like to see the tool that's going to measure that, the instrument that's going to somehow gather that. Look at verse 16. That gives us a glimpse of what we're talking about here. I'll read verse 15 just for the sake of context and we understand the flow. Rather, speaking the truth in love, that second purpose of the pastor teacher is to grow up the body in every way into him who is the head into Christ. If that pastor teacher is doing his job, then we are able to speak the truth in love because we know what the truth is. And that together we grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head, into Christ. And then in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together. If you're an underliner, join, or underline joined and held Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This concept I'm talking about of lives being actuated and energized to and into Christ is nicely brought out in these two words, joined and held together. Joined is not used, this word in the Greek is not used a lot in our Bibles. It's not used by Paul, but in one other place that I know of in chapter 2, verse 18. Let me just read it for you. I want you to listen about what it means to be joined here. If you want to understand what we're talking about here, listen to this passage. For through him, we both, that would be Jew and Gentile, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being, here it is, joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This word joined together is a beautiful concept here. And over here in chapter 2, you get a little picture of what it looks like. Where Jews and Gentiles, the most unlikely of companions and friends, become actually brothers and sisters. Joined together. That's a beautiful picture. Joined together as brothers and sisters and joined and united to Christ by faith. And then held together is that next passage or the next phrase there. This passage is used over in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at it at the end of the morning. And the, the phrase is used, knitted together. Knitted together. If you want to have a sense of what it means to be actuated to and into Christ, are energized to and into Christ, being joined to one another and to Christ is a nice help, and being held together or knitted together is a nice visual. Just imagine those sweet grandmothers that love their grandkids so much that they're going to knit that quilt together by hand. Imagine a God that's knitting a church together through faith in Christ, knitting together over time this tapestry of faith, these tapestry of families, these tapestry of lives that are intertwined and joined and thankfully held together. Man, that's what it means to be actuated into Christ. These two words, they're participles, and it doesn't really bring it out right here in this passage. Joined and held sounds like past tense, but they're actually present tense participles suggesting that we're talking about a process of, listen to this, continual mutual adjustment to one another and to Christ. That's what it means to mature in a church. That's what it means for a church to mature. And man, how do you measure that? Being actuated to Christ means continual mutual adjustment to one another and to Christ. That's the nature of church life and church growth. And it may or may not be reflected by numbers. Hear me say that. It may or may not be reflected by numbers. The numbers, thankfully, are his business, not ours. The second thing, that first thing was that Biblical kingdom growth isn't measured in numbers, but by lives actuated to and into Christ. The second thing is that growth, biblical kingdom growth, centers around a unifying message and the pastoring that goes along with it. It does. If, if this passage here in Ephesians chapter 4 has done anything for us in these last few weeks, for Brad and Scott and I, it's caused us to really swallow hard to realize what's expected of us. The importance of what we bring to this church, it's helped us see that we are these human gifts that are given to the church and that we are to do our job of teaching and preaching in season and out in order to grow the church up to a mature man. This passage brings that into focus too or connects it with the thought or the phrase there, by every joint. Contextually, that every joint, it actually means in the Greek ligament. By every joint giving its supply there in verse 16, the context, context points back to the pastor and evangelist, the pastor, teacher, and the evangelist as the joint and the ligament. 
Ligaments function to provide connections between the various parts. And in so doing, they mediate life and energizing power throughout the body. Man, that's a tall order. That's a tall order for anybody. I encourage you and beg you, actually, to pray regularly for your pastors because that's a lot. The third thing in the church growth guide, the first was that it's not measured in numbers, but in lives actuated into, to and into Christ. Secondly, that it centers around a unifying message and the pastoring that goes along with it. And the third thing for church growth, for biblical kingdom church growth, is that it is a corporate experience. Here's what's hard for me. I know it's kind of warm in here, and I know it's... it's Mother's Day, and I know that we're thinking about visiting and eating together and all that. And I know this has not been a real straightaway sermon. I struggle with it all over the course of the week. It's a lot to expose, especially for people that are parachuting in. But here's what's hard for me, is seeing people get sleepy. I mean, for real. When I was in, in uh, like ROTC in college, Captain Bennett was my instructor. And we're wearing uniforms in class, and he had an eraser that he'd erase the board with. And if he saw one of the Marine candidates sleeping, he'd take that eraser and go, boop. Oh, and it, would, it wouldn't do that. <laughs> and it would just cover you in a cloud of um, chalk. And he would say, you better wake up because you don't understand what's at stake. You better wake up, Marine, because you don't understand you're going to be leading Marines in harm's way. Do you realize what's at stake? And you know what he's talking about? He's talking about temporal matters like life and death here. What I'm talking about right here is eternal matters. I'm talking about stuff that's far more important than Marines leading Marines into harm's way. People have asked me over the years, said, man, that's kind of crazy for you to be a Marine infantry officer and then go be a pastor because that... You know, the Marine infantry officer, he's got to be hard. And then the pastor, he's he got to be kind of a little pushover. he got to be so easy on everybody. Let me tell you something. Not here. And it's not about my personality. It's because of what is being said here. What we're being called to. We're being called to being ready and mature and beautiful and not skanky and nasty and dirty for when our groom comes back. And that means work. And that means not just I'm not the only guy working. And Brad and Scott, this passage has dealt a lot with the pastor teacher. I agree. But it started, remember, at verse 7, with each of us. Gifts given to each of us. And it comes full circle right here at the end. In verse 16, I don't know if, or in verse 15, I don't know if you're paying attention. In verse 15, we hear the word we. Oh, so it's not just about Ben and Scott and Brad and about Derek out there on the far corners of the field as our sort of apostle abroad. It's not just a little three, four-man show. It's a we thing. This thing that we've been called to to mature and be ready for Christ's return is a we thing. We are to grow up in every way into him. Growth is a corporate experience. And if we are to be a mature, beautiful bride for when Christ comes back, then the we have got to be about the work. Look at what it says here in this passage. Every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, not sleeping. 
I'm not talking about if you get sleepy on a random Sunday morning. Man, if I weren't preaching, I'd probably be sleepy at times. That's human. You could be human. But don't make it a pattern of coming and sitting under the teaching and preaching of the word. And Man, it's every part working together is what matures a church. It's not just the pastor, teacher, and the evangelist bringing and doing the ministry of the word. It's also the every part listening, taking notes. Every shepherd in the church thinking, man, how am I going to help my family walk in this? It's work. Show me a church that's not connected to that where it's a one-man show and I'll show you a baby church. Wee little baby. She's not going to be ready for when Christ comes back. But a church where every member is doing his part, where the pastor and teacher is heralding, wielding it like it is an eternal matter, and where every part is going, okay, what's this gift that's been given to me? Some of you might have been thinking about this morning. What's my gift? We had a whole summer worth of spiritual gifts messages. You got a whole library you go back and listen to. Go listen to it. Every part working with that gift, that's what matures a church. Look at what the passage says here. Every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, I don't want to be part of a church where every part's not working. Seriously, for real. I don't care what they'd pay me. I don't care what the French French benefits were. (laughs) I don't even care. I don't want to be part of a church where people aren't working. Or where they're not, not at least saying, hey, how can I serve? If you're visiting this morning or you're here with family, you're like, man, I just want to find a place where I could go to church. I don't really want to do anything else. <laughs> you have traded your birthright for a bowl of soup. You're eating Tic Tacs when you could be eating three forks. You're missing out on blessings, showers of blessings, when you walk in actually using your gifting and are part of a church that is maturing together. Wow, man, this is probably the most important point of the morning. The onus is on all of us for church growth. And remember, I'm not talking numbers. I'm talking maturity and presentability, and readiness for when Christ comes back. The onus is on all of us. Healthy, growing churches are populated with people walking in their gifting. All right. I hope you all survived that. If you don't, man... I hope you'll think on it. I hope if you're a little bit alarmed by a guy that shot pretty straight with you this morning, if you're like, yeah, it's a too much for me. I just want a place to go to church. I hope in your quiet times as you're shaving or you're fixing your hair or whatever, where you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, what is life all about? What am I supposed to be about? That you'll wonder Have I traded my birthright for a bowl of soup? Is there something more that's rich and strong and potent and awesome and gives my life meaning 
that I'm missing out on because I'm not actively engaging being a part of the local body and growing into Christ together. I want to help you, though. If you're hearing this message this morning, you're like, man, golly, this sounds like this is really going to be, we really have our work cut out for us. I want to encourage you. This church, this this is an affirming message for me. It's affirming. If somebody said, hey, Ben, Brad, Scott, what did y'all set out to do 14 years ago? Well, it wasn't this. Not on purpose. It was accidental. We look at this passage in Ephesians 4 and go, golly, this is what God did. (laughs) No room for glory there. Don't give Ben, Brad, or Scott any glory because this is what God did in spite of us, if anything. Not because of us. And this passage just really in Colossians, it's sort of a mirror passage, and I'm going to end just reading it because I love the way it ends. Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Listen. It's a nice mirror passage to where we've been in Ephesians, and you'll hear some similarities. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. What he's talking about is don't be children that are fooled. By false teaching. Don't be children. Don't, be, don't, don't let anybody disqualify you with these false teachings. Not holding fast to the head. That's what those false teachings do. Listen. And not holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body nourished and knit together. There it is. Joined together. Through its joints and ligaments. Grows with a growth that is from God. Did anybody else need to hear that last phrase? Brad, did you need it? Oh, I can sleep tonight knowing that. Scott, did you need it? Oh, I can sleep at night with that last few words that says, a growth that is from God. He does the work. He does the work. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Oh, what a relief. My prayer as we go into the Lord's Supper is that he does a lot more of what he's done in the last 14 years. That he does the work of maturing this bride as he has in the last 14, that he makes us more beautiful, more mature, more ready, together, more actuated to Christ, more part of one another and part of him in the next 14.